You're listening to The John Chi Show, hosted by three Korean-American adoptees diving headfirst into what it means to be adopted, Korean, American, and more. And now, here's your hosts, Nathan, Patrick, and KJ. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The John Chi Show. <laughs> this is an incredibly formal event. Uh, thank you all for dressing up and being here. Uh, the microphones are mostly so we can record, and hopefully they don't feel like overkill to you. Does everything sound okay? Wonderful. Um, for the people who do not listen to the show regularly and also don't know me, I'll just <laughs> go through introductions. My name is KJ. This is Nathan Patrick and our guest, Stephanie Dranka. Stephanie, Woo! thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Woo! Woo! Um... That's what does John Chi mean? What does John Chi mean? I was going to say, it's, let's start with the basics. <laughs> yeah. let's, let's pretend we're doing a regular podcast. No, let's pretend like we've done it before. We are doing a regular podcast. I... <laughs> this is actually how all of these go. Exactly. We That's forget. why I know it's deeply Every accurate. Time. Um, yeah, Nathan, On what does brand. John Chi mean? John Chi means fe- feast or celebrate. Well, it doesn't really mean celebrate, but we, we like to consider ourselves celebrating our Korean adoption heritage. And our culture and our just our stories. Well, we also feast at the end of the show. Well, yeah, yes. we're feasting. We, we, we are we really are feasting yes, today. Literally. Yeah, we're going to build our own feast. Yes. So very Boiler. excited about that. <laughs> um, yeah, for you out-of-towners, thank you for coming in. For you in-towners, thank you for being here. Uh, it's really exciting to do this in front of people. Yeah. It's also like mildly terrifying. I don't know how you... <laughs> I mean, for people nervous. listening at home who aren't here... It's the they, same. We should tell them that we are in person oh, together. Yeah. There's a live. They show. might not know what's happening right now. Yeah, it's, but it's this is the morning show, so w- there's no cheering. It's just like by show of hands and things. Right. It's it's real chill. Everyone's making their way through their coffees or Lacroix or fruit cups or parfaits. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there's like tens of people here for the listeners at home. <laughs> like we're very popular. Yes. It's a, pa- it's, a, it, it's a packed room. It's, and I the, mean, we don't have to tell is, them it's not. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> you just did. You can hear the sarcasm in your voice. Oh, darn it. Incredible. Um, yeah, so, Stephanie, you are a local cad. Uh, I was going to say born and raised. But not, not born, just, just raised in the DFW area, right? Right. Um, yeah, so let's kick off this interview with the way we kick off all of our interviews. Will you tell us your story in as much or as little detail as you would like? I can do that. Um, let's see, the historian in me wants to do this chronologically. The mm. first <laughs> physical artifact I have of my life is the initial social history from Eastern Social Welfare Society, my adoption agency. And I actually had more of my story than I think a lot of Korean adoptees are given. Um, I was born in 1986, and I have a summary of how I came to be at Eastern Social Welfare Society. I had the names of my birth father and my birth mother, and the story of their relationship was that they lived together, but my birth father was a taxi driver and caused an accident and couldn't work, and so the scanty livelihood, as they said, um, caused a severe difference, and they separated. My birth mother perceived her pregnancy and thought that it would be best to give me up for adoption, and so she was the one that initiated the process. Uh, so I had a lot of kind of background, and my adoptive parents were very open about 
um, giving me access to that. So I knew that as the beginning of my story. And then um, my memories and stories um, beyond that started in Chicago. So my parents grew up in Chicago. I arrived in O'Hare Airport in May of 1986. We lived there for about two years with my younger brother, who is their biological son. So I was doing the math recently, and it was he was born nine months after I arrived. Um, so it's pretty interesting. They, you know, there's a lot of kind of anecdotal evidence of that happening. My parents had tried for several years; they had had miscarriages, decided to adopt, um, and then I lived in Georgia for eight years. And then we moved to Dallas-Fort Worth. So my dad worked for American Airlines. So my, our sort of travel history was based around airlines and um, airports. So Atlanta and then headquarters of American Airlines was in Dallas. So I grew up in a small town, a suburb called South Lake, Texas. And there's a whole podcast on South Lake, so I won't, I won't go into too much of the details there, but I will say predominantly white, affluent, racist um, community and unfortunately my parents wanted to go somewhere where the schools would be um, you know good for my brother and I white, yeah. And racist. yeah and so they asked we actually the, want those three things in our school they asked yeah. the real estate agent like where are the best schools and the realtor told them South Lake and so we lived in South Lake um, my time there was Pleasant only because I found my sort of home in the fine arts wing. I did show choir, choir, musical theater, and that really saved me. And it kept me, um, you know, in community with sort of the outcasts of, of the South Lake world, which South Lake is known for their football team. So the <laughs> I, I was a nerd, not just because of my Asian-ness, but because I chose to do theater at Carroll. So I sort of wore that as a badge of pride. But I knew I wanted a different experience in college. So I went to DePaul University in Chicago. Um, going back home, it was an, I knew I wanted to go to a big city, more diverse, uh, and my grandparents at the time were still living in Chicago, so I felt like, oh, if I need a home-cooked meal or to do laundry, I could hop on the L and go visit grandma and grandpa. And at the time, DePaul was ranked um, happiest students and most diverse student population, uh, so it sounded like a really good place to be. And I went there and realized um, that I had a lot of internalized racism that I hadn't dealt with uh, after living in South Lake. So I went to the involvement fair my freshman year and um, I got approached by the Asian sororities, the Asian American student organization, the Korean student organization. And I went to the first uh, general body meeting of the Korean student organization and it was the first time I had been in a room with so many people who looked like me and I had a bit of a panic attack, and um, I left early and found myself, you know, that, that whole first quarter not going back. I would see some of the KSO students like walking on campus, and they would wave to me, and I would pretend that I didn't see them, and I would walk the other way. And um, I think what happened, there was, a lot, there was a couple things that happened. I met another Korean adoptee. And so um, one of the people who had approached me from the Korean student organization was a Korean adoptee himself. We started dating, and he was a year older than me, so he had friendships kind of already established in the Asian American community. And I started going back to the meetings, dealing with all of the internalized racism and interpersonal racism that I had um, been raised around, and got really involved uh, 
just learning about my culture and um, being taken under um, my friend's wings that were Korean, teaching me the language and all of the, the customs and stuff like that. And I was involved in the Asian Student Organization, which was the Asian, Asian Cultural Exchange. And um, there was a new Asian American Studies minor being offered at DePaul that year. And so they asked the student organization, can you all promote it and take some of these classes just so that we can make a case for this. So I was majoring in communications and I was minoring in political science. And I decided just to take an Asian American Studies intro class to support them. It was the first time that I learned about Vincent Chin and the LA riots and all of the history that is not taught in Texas and really across America <laughs> about Asian Americans. And I sort of got addicted and I signed up for every Asian American studies class that was offered and switched my minor to that. And then when I realized how much intersectionality there was with Asian Americanness and um, other communities and minorities and especially the uh, intersection between Asian Americans and women, I decided to double minor in women's and gender studies as well. And through my time at the Asian Student Organization, I was eventually the president, and we brought in filmmakers to bring in and have events. And I met a filmmaker activist woman named Annabelle Park, and she had just finished doing a documentary and was touring with Eric Byler, another filmmaker. And they were working on a house resolution, um, House Resolution 121, and they were advocating for the passage of it. And um, they invited me to be a steering committee member and do the website and social media because they knew that I had um, digital marketing skills. And House Resolution 121 was calling on the government of Japan to formally apologize for the sexual enslavement of women and girls during World War II, um, many of whom were Korean women. And so I was on the steering committee for this advocacy group the um, legislation passed unanimously in 2007, and through that, Annabelle and I were invited to go to Korea in 2008 for the Overseas Korea Foundation's Future Leaders Conference. So up until that time, I had not been back to Korea, which was, um, in hindsight, interesting because my dad worked for an airline and we did a lot of international travel as a family, and we had never gone back to my home country. Um, and so, Annabelle fundraised for me to go with them because I was still a broke uh, a college student, recently graduated, still, uh, still hadn't found employment after graduation. And so she fundraised to get me my ticket and then the conference paid for the hotel. So it was my first time going back to Korea. The conference was very planned out, but I did think, okay, maybe I should go visit my adoption agency while I'm there, just something adoption related. I hadn't done a birth search or, or anything, but I contacted my local agency, which was in Illinois, and I told them I'm going back to Korea. Um, so they connected me with the social worker at Eastern, and they said, you can come do a tour. Would you like to start a birth search? And I said, no, I think I just want to visit. And they're like, well, we could find your foster mother, who I was with for three months, who used to send me Christmas cards um, every year. And I was like, oh, I'd love to meet her. Perfect. So during the conference, I didn't actually think we were going to have time for me to go to the agency because they were, you know, OKF. They're very <laughs> regimented <laughs> with their time. But there was a, t um, and a, a day that they were supposed to go to North Korea. And there had just been um, an incident where a tourist was shot. And so they had to change the plans a little bit, and they went to the DMZ instead. So I snuck out that day and went to the adoption agency. Went on the tour, did the whole 
you know, picture with the president and the, the old Korean man who was uh, still there and um, met my foster mother, which was really, really cool. She had the photo um, that was taken of me and her before I was sent on the airplane. She remembered me. She remembered that I had a, she said I had a big head. <laughs> and that, um, but Thank she also um, said that like she had, she had fostered a lot of babies and every time the babies would leave, she was so worried about what would happen to them that she wouldn't eat for several days. Um, her kids remembered me. So that was really cool. And she wanted to actually uh, drive me back to my hotel and spend more time with me. But the social worker was like, oh no, she has to do some other things. So I was like, okay, that's a little weird, but okay. So I, she, the social worker takes me into this room with a file of paperwork. And I was like, oh no, I, my parents gave me my file. Like I've got everything. And she's like, well, due to the laws at the time, there might be some information that your parents didn't get. Um, so let's go through this file. It's you know required to go through when you're here. So she opens it and you know the same thing that I, I knew. And then she's like, well, we did do an initial kind of search for your birth parents and your birth father passed away in 2004. This was 2008 when I was there. So I was like processing that. And then she's like, and then you had two older sisters. And she, she was like, oh, you didn't know that? And I was like, no, I didn't know that. And she's like, well, they were young. They might not have known that you existed. And I was just flabbergasted that they had this information the whole time and I wasn't given that. And she asked me, okay, do you wanna start a search now? And I said, like, absolutely. Like, I already felt like I had missed the opportunity to connect with my birth father. Like, who knows what time I have left? And then the fact that I had sisters. So I started the search and in my mind, I thought, oh, they're gonna, they send a telegram. And I was like, oh, they're gonna send the telegram. I'm gonna hear <laughs> while I'm in Korea, I'm still here for a few more days. I'm gonna get to meet them. Um, so I went back to the hotel and I was so overwhelmed by what was happening and the rest of the group was still on the tour. So I turned my computer on and I recorded a video in my hotel room and I uploaded it to YouTube. And it was just kind of documenting everything that I'd learned so that I could go back and process it later. And YouTube really became sort of an outlet for me to document this process, which took years. I went on um, the Korean television show via Skype to try to find them. They sent several telegrams. They sent police to the um, detectives to the address and it looked like no one had lived there. So I kind of just went back to everyday life. And about five years later, I was planning a wedding with my now ex-husband and I reached out to them one more time and I said, you know, I'm about to get married. I just feel like it's something that I would want my birth family to know or be aware of. Can you try one more time? And that was the time that she had actually sent someone physically to the location and she said, no one has lived at this address. This is sort of the end of the line, but if you wanna leave a letter and wedding photos, we'll, you know, we'll give it to them. And that was like around like June or July. So it was good. I had closure and I was ready to just like go forth and plan the wedding and buy house, all of the things. And then Labor Day, uh, September, I woke up to an email and um, it was sent like overnight because of Korea time from the social worker. And the subject was good news. And I opened an email and she said, I found your birth mother and your birth sisters. They're so excited to meet you. And here's, we have letters from them and here's photos of them. And it was, you know, in Korea time, nobody was at the office. So I was just reading through this email that I, you know, 
had no no one to talk to about, and I just started bawling um, because I had photos of my family members, and I didn't know who was who or or their stories. Um, so she translated the letters eventually. Um, put me in contact with my birth family, and I learned a little bit more of my story through those letters, and essentially it was that my birth father was the one who had wanted my birth mother to relinquish me because he wanted another son, and they already had two daughters. Um, they split um, after that happened, but got back together and had another child who was a boy, so they kept him, my younger brother. And the really the the next step for me was going to meet them because I, you know, that was what I had hoped for all that time. And my dad arranged everything for me because he was a, in the travel industry, it was incredible to have him as a resource. I was able to fly out there standby uh, during the week of Thanksgiving. So only a couple months after I found them and he like got me a hotel so that I could, you know, decompress and adjust to the time and everything. And I went to meet them, and I don't know, I had seen sort of the reunion videos and stories, and I just thought it was going to be, like, very dramatic. And I got to the adoption agency where we were meeting them, and they were all kind of in the lobby and just standing around, and it was just very, very awkward. Um, <laughs> so my middle sister and I had been talking the most because she spoke a little English, and so I hugged her, and then I went to, like, hug um, their my sister's husbands and stuff. And, like, they were all just, like, it was just very, like, I didn't realize how, like, this is my family, but not. Um, right. They're strangers. And so in my mind, I was like, well, let's all hug and reunite. And they were just very, Who like, are you? Yeah, who are you? And so then I thought, okay, well, we'll have the interpreter. We'll get all the awkwardness out of the way. Well, the inter the social worker was with another family. And so she's like, y'all go to lunch and then come back. So I go to lunch with them, not speaking the language. And the only thing that they're like, they were really surprised that I knew how to use chopsticks. So my little niece was just like staring at me. She was like, how do you, they're like, cause she knew that I was from America. And so she was very confused how I knew to use chopsticks. Um, so we got through a lot of the awkwardness. They were just trying to feed me more and more. My stomach was hurting. I was so full and they just kept trying to give me more food. We went back to the agency. I got a lot more of the story. And um, my, I had brought a video that my parents had made me when I graduated college that had like kind of, you know, all my performances. It was like a montage of my life. And I thought that they would be really excited to see it and know that I had a good life and I was happy. And I played the video and everyone started crying and my sister got up and left the room and I just felt like, did I do something wrong? Like, what is going on? And my sister came back and talked to the social worker and the social worker just explained like um, their, um, their father was not a kind man. And so it was really hard for them to see like the difference in our, in our childhoods. Um, he was um, an alcoholic and um, addicted to drugs, and so he prioritized sort of that and his his mistress over over the family. He died in jail, um, and so like seeing all the memories with my birth or with my adoptive family, I think kind of triggered something in theirs. Um, but I spent the rest of the week with them without the social worker after the first um, day and a half and kind of just got by with Google search and Google Translate and kind of body language. And it was a surreal experience. It wasn't um, what I, it 
didn't give me the answers that I think I was looking for. I thought that my birth mother would be really interested in learning about my life and getting to know me and building a relationship, but she still had so much guilt and shame that she wouldn't even look me in the eye. Like she would just look down and she just kept saying, I'm sorry in Korea and Miyane, like over and over. Um, so I really just bonded with my middle sister because I spent the most time with her. My oldest sister had to work a lot. Um, and so that was hard coming back from that, not getting kind of the closure that I thought, um, getting really close with my sister and then being ha like being taken away from her essentially again and knowing that they weren't going to be at my wedding and all of that. But then you go back to real life and I had a job and I had all of this other stuff happening and kind of forgot about it a little bit. Um, my sister came with uh, her husband and my niece um, to visit me in Dallas, and it was the first time that my mom and dad had met somebody from my birth family, so that was very interesting. It was, I think, painful for my mom to see um, my sister and I so close, and so um, there was so much physical resemblance between us. My birth mother actually said that when she was holding me as a baby, I looked so much like um, my middle sister. And so she told my middle sister that, and she said that as an adult, she would look to see if people who looked like her and wondered if it was her sister. She, so she had some plastic surgery, but in the earlier photos, like we look almost identical. And it's really weird seeing photos of her at sort of my age in college when we were very similar looking and it was almost like a glimpse of the life that I might have had. It was like getting to see that trajectory in, in her life. Um, fast forward, um, I think a few years, I just got really involved in work. I was, um, I had several different career changes. I worked with fashion bloggers and in the technology world and then I went to the nonprofit world and um, that's sort of where I still am. And I got to um, go through this um, writing fellowship called the Op-Ed Project Public Voices Fellowship. And through that, it's the idea is to um, get more women in underrepresented communities um, pitching op-eds and being seen as experts and then building thought leadership. And one of the exercises that they had us do in the first convening was say like what you're an expert at. And you have to be the most expert at that than anyone else in the room. And I was in a room, you know, if I was to say like, I'm an expert in like encouraging youth to be in the arts. Like there was tons of people in the nonprofit space that could say that better than I could. So when it was my turn, I said, well, I'm an expert in transracial Korean adoption because I was adopted at the age of three months. And of course, nobody in the room could beat me at that. And so the op-ed project taught me to use that really specific expertise and branch it out and connect it to issues that mattered to me and write op-eds about it. And so I wrote an op-ed in HuffPost that year about being an adoptee and being pro-choice and talked about my experience meeting my birth mother who um, told me that after relinquishing me, it was so traumatic for her that when she would get pregnant with girls afterwards, she chose to have abortions and so like the idea that um, everyone was saying oh well you should be so grateful and aren't you glad it's hard when you know how much pain like being adopted caused um, for my birth mother it's very hard to celebrate my birthday now because when I think about it it was like the worst day of her life and it feels strange to celebrate it so I wrote about that um, and then kind of tied my adoption experience growing up in Texas to other things about lack of representation in Asian Americans in the media, 
um, experiences of Asian American women, and I got you know um, a lot of experience sharing my story and having it tied to um, larger impact. But at the same time, I was watching people in my fellowship have a really difficult time getting published because they didn't have PhDs or they didn't have the right title. And we had someone from our local paper come in and listen to our pitches, and she told us, well, you know, our, our subscriber base is middle-class white men, so unless you can tailor your argument to appeal to them, I'm going to have a difficult time placing this. And so I went home that night, and I started my own online magazine, Visible, because I had had um, experience building um, websites and platforms through the fashion blogging world. And so I was like, I can do this myself. And um, so that I've had that for about uh, three or four years. And so... I was doing that working in nonprofit. I had a chance to go back and visit my birth family in October right before COVID. So thank God I got some time with them. And my, um, my grandmother passed away um, during the COVID period. So I was able to see her one more time. Um, and then sort of everything happened around last year. And I was working at a nonprofit that focuses on racism and telling um, telling untold stories and and uncovering, you know, hidden history from the community. And I realized in in March, April, May of last year that the Asian American story was not being told even by me in this organization and um, how critically important it was for us to know our history because it was being repeated. So I had access to that from um, my Asian American studies background, but my friends and family who were you know, from Dallas, didn't know about Vincent Chin, didn't know about the LA riots, and did, definitely didn't know about any history of Asian Americans in Dallas. And I was invited to sit on panels to talk about this, and I was looking around the room, and I'm like, why am I the one speaking about Asian American history? Don't we have professors? Don't we have researchers and experts? And we really just didn't. Um, so I channeled my grief from that time into creating um, the Historical Society, which we finally launched and got our 501c3 in April of this year. So the Dallas Asian American Historical Society is sort of my way of um, making sure that people have access to their history and their origins and are able to feel connected to their country or even their ancestors in a way that adoptees don't have. Um, so it's kind of interesting that the Historical Society is being led by someone who's Really, our family history is stripped from us in Korea. We're, um, we're taken off of our family registry, and we start our own. So we're like the only ones in our lineage. Uh, and so knowing the, the void that that left me, I want to make sure that Asian Americans in this community don't have to face that. Well, long story. <laughs> no, that was honestly great. Incredible. I could listen to you continue to talk. <laughs> I really appreciate you sharing all that. That is... Obviously, a lot to unpack, but I think that at the end of the day, you know, it's the reason we started the show, and that's why we ask people or give people the option to tell as much or as little as they want, because all of our stories are complex in different ways, and some people know how to share it, and some people don't because they never have before or never mm -hmm. had the opportunity. So to hear you so eloquently speak on your experience, I think it's powerful because I've read a lot of your things, but I, you know, to hear you actually voice it and to hear the emotion you know, that you still carry for all of this is, is really powerful. So I just wanted to thank you for sharing that. Well, and I think you've, you've given such a great insight into the process of reunion and the aftermath of that. 
and centering not only yourself, but also like your birth family in a way that other guests haven't been able to, or haven't had the privilege of being able to. Um, and I, like the thing that struck me so much in your story was the amount of erasure that happens. And I know mm. like that's really common for adoptees, right? Like we, the moment we're given up, like things are erased. And so to hear, I think like the erasure that maybe continued to happen for your birth family, it, it just adds like a new dimension. I don't know. I'm, st I'm not going to be able to ask a question about it because I'm still thinking about it. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of grief and a lot of, um, yeah, uh, just a lot. Um, but I think it's a, it's a really unique perspective and one that I haven't heard before in as many reunion stories, you know, be they good or bad, um, the erasure on both sides. And I don't know that I've, maybe we talked about it with other people, but I've also not thought about, um, in Korean society that they erase you from your family's ledger and start you in their, with your own. Um, cause I've definitely thought about that being here and starting my own family is like, well, this is the first iteration. <laughs> I have no ancestors. Right. I can only be an ancestor, you know? Um, yeah. So it was just weird to hear that echoed in the actual legal system of Korea. So thanks for sharing your story. <laughs> in, in, in addition to what KJ said, I, I resonated with a lot of that because after I met my biological family, I, I too learned their side of the story, which is something I think maybe a lot of adoptees might not think about. They think of theirs and, oh, I want to, you know, see why was I given up? Why was I, um, you know, um, adopted? What was uh, my story, I guess? But they don't think really about, oh, what about siblings? What about their stories? What, about, what were they doing at the time I was adopted? What, you know, was my mom forced to uh, put up, you know, put me up for adoption and all this other stuff. So the learning more about that and the, the stuff that you did, I, I also did similar things where I saw my brother older at a certain age going, oh, that's what I, I may look like <laughs> in seven, eight years or, you know, things like that or things like that. Like, I, did I never wrinkle. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> it's like, he still has hair. Yes. <laughs> uh, things like that. So I, really, I, I know I was doing the same things. I mean, my, when I first met him too, my wife was, uh, and his wife were critiquing our walks going, look, they walk oh, the yeah. same, <laughs> you know, things like that. It's just, there it was little similarities that I was always looking for. Um, and, uh, so I can see that, uh, you know, it's, it's important for some people, um, well, to know that they have something that they look To your like. point about um, us not necessarily considering birth family, to KJ's point about erasure, that's how we talk about adoption. That's the, they are erased from that moment. Like We don't want to talk about the people that are left behind or left out of that situation. So then we have to go through the, the, the process of uncovering that. And I think something that's really interesting, because I also like history, but knowing how you got okay, so involved <laughs> into history, though, in college and, and really throwing yourself into that, um, I wanted to ask, at that time, was, as you were learning about Asian American history and going through these classes and really developing that understanding, did your identity as an adoptee play any role in that at that time? Was that something that you were thinking about and was influencing how you were learning? Um, I still hadn't done a lot of research on Korean adoption at the time, and I think it kind of just went back to that insecurity of not being Korean enough, um, not speaking the language. So I focused a lot on just general Asian American history. And then going back um, to Korea was an interesting moment for me. The survivor that I got really close with at the time, um, Lee Young-soo, who is a former 
comfort woman in quote, quotation marks, um, she and I got really close and she, um, she was really interested in me finding my birth family and she apologized to me on behalf of Koreans. And she was like, I'm so sorry. Um, and I apologize for what we did to you. And this is somebody that went through the most horrific experiences, you know, that unimaginable. And so it really made me feel connected to her. She didn't, she wasn't able to get married or have children, grandchildren because of the stigma around comfort women. And so we call the survivors Halmony. And, she, you know, she was the first sort of family member that I felt like connected to in that way um, because we both were missing that and it was both taken from our, our governments. And so I, when I started looking more into the history of Korean women and the World War II, et cetera, what was interesting is that um, the province that I was born in, Kyungsan Bokdo, um, and Kyungsan is my name, is my parents always thought that was why I was named Kyungsan, was because of the province. But they actually, um, that city had the most women and girls from their area taken um, to be sexual slaves. So it was interesting um, seeing that history and the connection with my sort of um, homeland and my um, province just kind of that realization that we're all connected, that like our stories are all bound together. Um, and with my name, I actually found out that my sisters are Kyungmi and Kyunghee. And so my birth mother didn't name me, she tells me, but the social worker had my sister's names that whole time and chose my name to follow the tradition. So I thought that was another really, well, thank you for sharing that one. And I thought that was another really interesting thing about your story is that like you went back and you snuck away from the OKF tour, which I know about, um, <laughs> to do your own thing, which was to go, not necessarily, like go back to the orphanage or whatever, like to not necessarily, to meet your foster mom. That's what it was. Um, and then after you had done that, they had, the social worker had went out on their own to start to initiate the search that you said that you were, didn't want to do. So I was wanted to ask you about that. Like, what was your, like, obviously you got new information that, you know, propelled you through the rest of your journey or uh, that specific part of your journey. But what was your initial reaction to being like, uh, you just did all this without my consent? Um, at that point I was, you know, not happy, but I was relieved to have the information. Looking back, the, um, what what's frustrating to me is the access to information that they have and they don't give you that full context before they ask you like if I had known that I had sisters if I had known that my birth father had passed away I would have started looking for my birth mother possibly sooner like back in 2004 I was 18 at the time I could have known so um that was frustrating to me the the kicker is that I wouldn't have found, I wouldn't have been reunited with them had it not been for a social worker that broke the rules and contacted my sister directly. So after that email that I had sent about the, the wedding and she got, she sent me that email back, she went around um, protocol, had my sister's names and sent a telegram to my sister's address, found her. Wow. Um, and so that was not allowed. Um, and if she had followed the rules, I, it would still have been just a telegram. It was going to my grandmother's house that my, um, birth mother didn't live in anymore. And so, but yeah, so that like that, our fate is left in the hands of people that are bound by rules that keep us from yeah. right. the information that we deserve to have. Well, that's the whole like system mm -hmm. of adoption 
both stateside, but mm-hmm. in yeah. Korea too. And you're like, it's so gridlocked, and there's a bunch of red tape on both sides, and it makes it so hard for adoptees to break through and find any sense of connection to anything. So because it's like time limited, like for your files, mm-hmm. like you're not even allowed to take pictures of your files like you get like here's five minutes <laughs> and memorize all of this oh you don't have a translator sorry like you have to go ahead and figure that out on your own so yeah so wild what um i want to jump to your time at undergrad at DePaul, and i think it's significant that you did have someone else that like guide you into the asian american space um and i think there's I mean, we talk a lot about on the show about how we hold Asian American and adoptee identities as intersectional, but definitely their own thing. Um, but I'm curious, what was the, like, was there a moment in college or maybe right after college when you were like, yeah, I, I feel comfortable now saying I'm Asian American. I feel comfortable opting into this identity. I've moved past my, my own internal hangups of that. Um, the story that really changed my view of Asian Americans are, <laughs> sorry, you, you can take a minute we, we'll just edit it out it was the story <laughs> of Vincent <laughs> for me it was the story of Vincent Chin's murder but more specifically um, the advocacy of Helen Zia and so I think I connected and resonated with her story as a journalist because I was look, I was studying communications thinking I'm going to go into journalism but I was having trouble with that objectivity that's required of traditional journalism. And then hearing about Helen Zia and learning her story and the fact that she was a reporter, but when it came to reporting on her own community and the injustice and the racism and needing to name um, Vincent Chin's murder as a racist act, that she went around the traditions of that um, because the Asian American community needed it and the rallying of the communities behind her and behind the advocacy for Vincent Chin's murders to be brought to justice really made me feel proud to be part of that community. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's something I feel like we, a lot of us, especially in the adoptee, Asian adoptee community have went through over, especially since Atlanta. So like last March, I feel like that was an inflection point for a lot of us. Mm -hmm. Like we were, there were six of us in a clubhouse room when the news broke. It was just Asian adoptees and we all was just like, what does this mean? And so we all just kind of went to process on our own. And I, we started our own adoptee rooms specifically because we felt like the Asian American rooms were not recognizing our stories. Like we'd go up on stage and share and then you'd hear nothing. And then somebody who else would come on and then everybody would be like, oh yes, I resonate with that. And I'm like, well, I want people who resonate with my story. But after that happened, I went into another room and I got up on stage and shared. And for the first time I felt like I was heard. And for the first time I felt like, okay, I think I can't, I am. Asian American, like I think I can actually mm-hmm. lean into this. And so I think the really sad part is, the really unfortunate part is that we, a lot of times it takes this traumatic moment, some sort of really devastating point in history for us to be able to be like, oh, maybe this is something I need to think about. Because when we walk on the street or when we exist in the world, we go to work, we're still Asian. You know, people don't look at us and go, oh, this, you're adopted. <laughs> like. Yeah, like you, they, get a, you, you don't get just a hall pick pass that out. Adopted. Yeah, you don't just yeah. pick that out. You know, we wear our ethnicities on our face, literally. And so, you know, I think it's, it's, yeah, it's just really sad to think about the trauma that's needed for us to f- kind of find those things. 
And I was wondering, um, speaking not of trauma, but of <laughs> specifically of history, like after you had, you talked about it a little bit, but um, when you started to really lean into all of this and learning about Helen Z and what she did, did you think about, did you have ideas about how you could potentially advocate for the adopted community from that standpoint? Because I don't think there's like journalists or people operating in that space, especially from even a subjective mindset, talking about those types of things. Did you notice that? And was that something that you had thought about, oh, maybe I could bring a voice to that community here? Um, the advocacy part for me was sort of accidental. Um, when I was in college and I was recording those YouTube videos, it was because all of my friends, even Asian American or non-Asian, couldn't understand what it was like uh, to hear this information about your birth family, to not be able to share it with your adoptive parents because it'll hurt their feelings. Um, and so when I was recording it, it was more me reaching out, hoping that someone in the adoptee community would understand, um, but also in case somebody else was going through that same thing so that they would feel like they weren't alone. So anytime that I shared my story or I, um, kind of advocated in any small way. It wasn't so much on behalf of the adoptee community or to really advocate for anything. It was more just in case there was somebody that might feel like no one else understood them. And I still feel that way in a sense. I, I, I recognize my privilege and the ability for me to share my story um, to advocate for change in a different way, but at the at the core of it, it's still just in case there's a high schooler right now in somewhere like South Lake who can't talk to their parents about what's going on um, after the Atlanta shootings, that they know that there's someone who has been through it and survived, and that they can they can keep going. On your website, you also wrote a letter to your 22 year old self, which you ended, I think, with saying that you are not alone um, with the people that are out there with you know people that may be secluded or areas that they don't have, what kinds of words would you have for them to, what would advice, I guess, for somebody who may be looking for ways of not being alone, what kinds of community, what kinds of ways of moving past uh, um, you know, their adoption trauma? Um, I think that's why history is sort of my passion right now. Um, I would hope that um, even if they don't have access to sort of real life connections that with the internet and with technology, they're able to access um, things like this podcast or oral histories or videos or stories from other people from their community. So they realize that a lot of us have been doing this work and trying to pave a way for them. Um, so I think my advice would be like, you have a place in history, learn it and own it and be proud of it. Um, and it's okay to not feel okay. That's what was really hard about, um, you know, and we, we know the statistics about adoptee suicide ideation and depression and mental health, let alone Asian Americans, Asian American women and young people. Um, and we aren't as adoptees allowed to sit in that grief and that depression and ask for help because we're seen as ungrateful. So when I think of my like loneliest moments um, that kind of drive me to do what I do, my my mom used to put um, like a big cardboard box of all my winter clothes in my closet. Um, and I remember some of the days when I came home after school, after being called a chink or after being told to go back to China, and I would go in the closet and I would sit in that cardboard box and I would just cry. And then I'd come down for dinner and be fine. And like the theater side of me would like kick in. 
So I think about like somebody literally sitting in a box in their closet, like feeling like I'm the only person in the world who is going through this and how am I going to get through this? And, um, you know, that's... Well, and you don't even know, I think, that's the other thing too that strikes me. So in, in Korean tradition, I guess, whatever, society, culture, like there's this concept of Han, right? Mm -hmm. Just that like deep abiding grief and perseverance, I think, but like that like kind of binds the Korean people together. And I think for Korean adoptees especially, probably for all adoptees on some level, but um, for us CADs, like we're born out of Han and we're born into Han and we continue and perpetuate Han. And I think like when you're stripped of that context and you're like, I feel real sad and I don't, <laughs> I don't get where this is from because you're constantly told your story from your parents um, and you're constantly told like, oh yeah, like we, you know, whether you're a first wave Korean adoptee or even a Korean adoptee now, there's some aspect of saviorism in the story that you're told. And so you're like, your parents are basically just like heroes or saints or angels for adopting you, especially if like me, you're a special needs adoptee. And then, so you get this, and you're like, oh yeah, we're just like so grateful. We're so grateful to have you. And then you're like, well, yeah, how could I not be grateful for this life apparently that I've been given, you know, and all those kinds of things. And then you have this deep, tragic pain in your system from your ancestors that you don't know anything about, from your being that you didn't have any say in becoming, you know, and all those things. And you're like, and also I don't know because I'm also 13 or 16, which is just an emotional time for every human. So yeah, and you're just like, uh, I don't, yeah. And I think that that's, that's really hard to, um, to point to in oneself uh, and it's even harder to articulate. Um, but I'm curious, what's the, as you've married Asian Americanness and adoptiveness in yourself, um, what's been what have the conversations been like, or have the conversations existed with your family? I think as you get published, as you do things you're proud of, as you do this, that, and the other, do you share that with your family? Do you like uh, they might stumble across it because of the internet, but probably not because the internet. And yeah, what's that? What's that relationship like? And that yeah, dynamic like? I sh I share everything with my family. I'm I mean I'm very public, and my you know my parents know that I have a website and social media, and they knew that I was going through that fellowship, and so I wanted to share the successes with them. I would send my mom and dad like in a group text the link, and my dad would always text me separately like right away. And like, congratulations, we're so proud of you. And sometimes it would take like a day or two to hear back from my mom. And I would go through like all of the mental gymnastics, like wondering if I said something. And then she would say, I read it. I'm so proud of you. Your, your, mm. your voice is changing the world, like all of the things. But I realized like they need space to process what I'm saying. And it's been a very slow process. My mom um, especially did not understand why I was looking for my birth family, um, struggled with me going back. And she'll say to me, you know, like, well, we just saw you as our daughter. We didn't see you as Korean or we didn't see you as Asian. Right. And it wasn't until the shootings in Atlanta that they understood, like, that doesn't protect me in, in, the, in the real world. And they understood why I was sort of doing this work. But the hardest thing has been the South Lake sort mm. of revelations because they chose that school district. My mom was actually a teacher, a librarian in the district for like close to 20 years. 
And so my mom would always tell me like, oh, it's getting more diverse, like things are better. And I would just say like, no, it just means there's more children of color that are like being hurt. And so the podcast came out and she was listening to it and she was like, but you didn't experience and things weren't that bad when you were there. And I had to say to her, I was like, of course they were. Why do you think that I do this work? Why do you think I work for an anti-racism organization? It's because I know how that felt. And so it's been a very, it's surprising how long it's taken for them to kind of come to the realization of things. But I think it's at the same speed as like the rest of America is realizing like Asians are not the model minority. Asians experience racism in a, like in a different level. Um, And so they're kind of just following that trajectory. Um, My brother, who's their biological son, um, has not really talked to me about this. Um, But what's nice about my relationship with him, it's that he has said, well, we'd like to go to Korea, like him and his wife. Like Mm -hmm. we should ask mom and dad to like take a trip. We'd love to go with you and um, like meet your family. And so it's kind of nice to have support on on that side. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, again, we talked about erasure on like the birth family side. And I think for us, especially myself, going through this work of like learning my identity, unlearning a lot of that internalized whiteness and racism, um, I want or can sometimes expect my family to keep up with me, and that's really untenable because I move quickly. That's super unfair. Um, Have you met yourself? Yeah, and um, and yeah, so like my parents were very conservative in like 2014 to 2020, and it took a lot, but um, like like yourself, you know, we have a public platform on the podcast and I was sharing before, my mom's listened to every episode and after Atlanta, like we did an episode where I was just really emotional, just kind of let everything out. And it took a couple days, but my mom finally texted me and she said, she said words that I never would have imagined come out of her mouth. She said, well, it was a text message, but she said that she apologized for treat, grow, treating us or, or she apologized for raising us in a colorblind household and then she said that she would, she finally understood that she would never understand what it meant to be a person of color or an Asian American. And like, I was at work that day and I was like, started crying at my desk. I'm like, okay, I gotta leave. Like, this is like way too much. Um, but it set us on this path of like healing where, and then at like that moment too, made me realize, okay, it's like, it does take that time. And kind of like, you know, how you said your mom might take a couple days where your, your dad will text you immediately. like. My relationship with my father is still positive, but like he does not, he's definitely moving much more slowly. Like they'll give you, they'll give me the, the um, we're proud of you, this, this, that, and the other with him, but you know, it's been a lot longer process and I'll sit there and wait by the phone and wait to hear something and never hear anything. And it's like, okay, what can I do to push on this? Or thinking that it's my fault that I've done something now to make him feel like he can't say that or, you know, uh, share in that and that growth and healing. So I appreciate you reflecting on that and sharing that. Um, when it comes to when it comes to that process, especially with our adoptive families, I was wondering if you could share a little bit, kind of like Nathan had asked, some advice for people on how you approach that relationship when sharing. Because I know like a lot of people who end up on our show will be sharing for the first time. And we've had folks who are like, I don't know if my parents will listen to this, but if they do, <laughs> I don't like, know what's gonna happen. <laughs> I don't know if I should share this with my exactly. parents. Exactly, so it's like, so I mean, do you have, I mean, are there words of encouragement or advice that you would give for people to navigate that particular relationship? Um, 
therapy helps. Um, and one of the things that I've had to work through with therapy is that there's certain things about my parents that are, is not going to change in my lifetime. And I can't always, um, limit my behavior and the things that I need to do for myself based on hoping that they might be ready. Um, so I think I can be respectful and, um, you know, show, you know, a level of gratitude while being as truthful as I need to cope with things and to, um, not always see my parents as like the ultimate audience. Um, because sometimes I'll share the article and I will go through those, um, moments of like, what did I do? But then I get messages from adoptive parents who have access to resources that my parents didn't have. And they're like, oh, we're so excited that we can show your videos to our kids when they grow up or like, can I email you with questions? And so, you know, I'm reaching other people besides my parents with my story. And that sometimes needs to outweigh the fear mm -hmm. of what my parents might think or feel. I love that. What does it feel like when adoptive parents reach out to you with those messages? It makes me feel hopeful. It makes me feel like the work that we've done um, over the past, you know, decades is not um, in vain and things are changing and things are very different than when my parents and our parents adopted us and were given horrible advice from adoption agencies and social workers. Assimilate only. <laughs> look it up in your encyclopedia. Yeah, look it up in your... <laughs> Yeah, there, a lot of the work that we like do. Um, for Korea. Um, I'm sure y'all kind of feel this too. Like a lot of the problems that we're working to solve, we probably won't see happen in our lifetime. And mm. it can be really, really overwhelming and um, easy to burn out. You have to really, really cherish those small wins, those, those emails, those comments, those like moments to kind of put things in perspective because it gets really, really hard. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being here and for sharing your story and being as candid as you were. Um, if there are any questions from the audience, we have a mic. I'm just going to throw that out, but you don't have to have any questions. <laughs> the line is a mile long. The line is, for the listeners at home, the line is tens of people deep. Yeah. They're sitting outside there is, waiting for lifeline check-ins. There, there's a traffic here. jam. This is the advantage of doing the live, though, is you get the in-person chance yeah. to ask Just a pop question. your jaw. I did. That was loud. It's fine. <laughs> I don't have a question, but I have a comment. My mom is a retired librarian as well, elementary, and she did it for like all of my childhood. And so when you were talking about her talking about the children coming in, I'm in your perspective, I was literally thinking copy and paste. <laughs> <laughs> and I like how you guys talked about like basically the emotional cap of your parents and about how it's kind of being released a bit, but they are still very set in their ways. So. Yeah, I've had multiple times where my parents have, have apologized as well. Cause, mm -hmm. And then that's what we kind of briefly talked about at the beginning. Um, sometimes I feel like I don't want to say too much or I don't want to offend them. And I, I have to be careful with what I say, but it's not intended to be pointed at them. And I'm not blaming them. And I'm not saying they did anything wrong, but they still felt the need to apologize that they didn't do more. Yes, and that they didn't, you know, I mean, they, we, you know, we, you know, because you were uh, through Dylan too, that, yeah. that there, we didn't know that there were Dylan camps and things like that. Yeah. So, you know, and we were racing. Even then, Dylan camps yeah. didn't do much. Would I, and, and, would I have, <laughs> and would I have wanted to go? Who knows? Yeah, you know, yeah. That's funny. <laughs> yes. 
Well, I think we take it, I think one of the things that we do is we take it on ourselves, like we have to be the ones to educate our families and be the ones to give them the answers and how to do this or that when that's really not the case. It's also on them to be able to want to do that work for us. It's, so yeah, it's not, it's not all, it's not all the way on our shoulders. Yeah, the amount of times I've heard black people say to black people or queer folks say it to queer folk, like, you don't have to educate. Yeah. Like, that's not on your shoulders. And then, like, when you think about that for, for, like, for ourselves, you're like, oh, yeah, I guess that also applies to us, too. Like, we don't have to shoulder this burden. Like, there are people who are willing to do that with our, in our own communities who are willing to put out podcasts or books or, you know, whatever. So, like, the information is out there, and you shouldn't feel that personal burden. And it is, like... I mean, I get like, it's kind of rude to be like, hey, with my life, I'm going to constantly throw my parents into some cognitive dissonance right? for not know, you know what I mean? So like, it's hard to, I think the thing that I've learned is how to hold grief without blame. Sure. And that's like, you know what I mean? Like it just, it is what it is. And this is how I was raised. And I grieve that. And I also don't blame anyone. And I want things to be better for the next wave of adoptees or or adoptive parents or birth parent you know whomever whatever system you decide to fight so well, it's that and like you said you yeah. know it's getting away from the binary of or like we can only have it this way or that way it's like no we can have it all the ways because we, <laughs> we because we do <laughs> we can have it all the ways we yeah. contain multitudes and not blaming people but blaming systems yeah. and blaming institutions and holding them accountable while still like being empathetic and understanding to the people that were you know caught up in the system changing the system mm-hmm Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> we are going to take a break and uh, we're not coming back for the podcast, but we're going to cut to some, <laughs> some in-person stuff. So, uh, Stephanie, thank you very much for thank the podcast. Listeners, though. Where can people find you, connect with you, read your stuff? What's the best way to get a hold of you? Um, my personal uh, website is stephaniedrinka.com and I'm at Stephanie Drink on all the social media channels. And then my um, online magazine is visiblemagazine.com. I love sharing adoptee stories, so please... If you're a writer or a poet or you just have things to say, submit to Visible. Perfect. Perfect. And if you're in the Dallas area, uh, DallasAsianHistory.org. Yeah, Dallas <laughs> got, got it. For the DFW area, but mostly <laughs> Dallas, starting in Dallas. And yeah. if you want to find us, you can find it in the show notes because I don't want to do that extra. In person. Extra? Yeah, yeah. We'll, tag it. we'll, tag, it we'll tag it later. We'll tag it later. You get it. You know where to find us. All right. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> Thank you. Yay. Yay.